Good morning. You know, I think, Ken, I think that's only like the third time that necking in a rumble seat has been spoken from this pulpit. So I don't even know what that is, but it sounds interesting. Um, We are in a series on the Ten Commandments, and over the last couple of months we've been exploring God's top ten ways to preserve and protect our relationships, both our, our vertical relationships with God, but also our horizontal relationships with one another. The first four commandments really are intended to protect our relationship with God, and the last six are all about protecting and preserving our relationship with one another. And today, I get to talk about the seventh commandment. So let's throw that up. It's Exodus 20, verse 14. You want to read this with me? You shall not commit adultery. All right, so let's pray and close, and we'll have the band come back up. That pretty much speaks for itself. And and as I've been thinking about it, it's like, well, okay, we get it, we know it, and it's one of those where God doesn't spend a whole lot of time going in deeper because it should be something that we get. And yet, as I've kind of stepped back from this, I've realized that we live in a society that this doesn't necessarily become the norm. We live in a kind of society that actually in many ways celebrates adulterous relationships. I mean, you you turn on the television and the television shows that we see, or you go to a movie or you read about magazines, and the things that we see celebrated in our society are the very things that God is warning us away from. And here's the scary truth. The things that we celebrate will become the norm. Think about that for a second. The things that we celebrate, the things that we hold up, the people that we say, these are the paradigms that we want to be like, our sports stars, our movie stars, and all these kind of things that our kids are learning from the television shows, Teen Mom, and all these kind of things. And then we wonder why our kids are dressing so provocatively. We wonder why our kids are, are, are I mean, I, I grew up in a high school where I, nobody I knew had sex, and yet, I'm sure they did, I just was kind of checked out. Um, but the reality is, we live in such a sin-saturated culture that this is not, this doesn't seem as impossible. This is very common in our culture. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to step back from this commandment, and I actually want to look at what God has to say, because we hear seven days a week what society has to say about our sexuality. What we hear seven days a week, what society thinks about what marriage is. But what I want to do this morning is I want to lay a theological foundation for what God has to say about both our sexuality and marriage. And so, if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, because... And we often go here, and by the way, if, if you've got young kids in here, this is going to be a PG, PG-13 conversation. We are going to talk about sex. If you don't want to have questions as you're driving home today, you might want to send them across the street. But again, this is probably an important conversation to be having with them. So. And the reason that we tend to start a lot of these conversations in Genesis 1 and 2 is because these chapters paint a picture of God's intention for creation. This is what God intended for us. You going to come and help me? Are we back on? No, you're just moving that? Okay, he's going to fix me. Kathy's, Kathy's been trying for nine years. She hasn't had any luck, so good luck. Awkward. You owe me dinner. Just ignore it. All right. 
Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Up to this point, God has been calling the heavens and the earth into existence and then bringing order into the chaos. And he keeps like, he's like this artist who creates something and then he steps back and goes, ooh, that's good. And then he, and he creates fish and the birds and he steps back and goes, ooh, that's good. And then we get to verse 18, the first time that God identifies anything as not good in his creation. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, so I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. A suitable helper. Now I want to stop there for just a moment and, and point something out. In no way is this being denigrating or derogatory towards women. It's not suggesting that a woman is a second-class human being. Because you realize that that exact term, helper, used to describe the female in the relationship, is the same word that later on in the scripture is used to describe God himself. He is our helper. So he's not suggesting that the woman is a second-class human being. He's suggesting that women were made as a counterpart to man, to be partners in the process of bringing order to God's creation and caring for it, being stewards of what God has made. And so we see God saying, I'm going to make a helper suitable for the man. And then he begins to parade all of the animals in front of the guy. He starts naming them. And then, you know, but, but none of those animals are a suitable helper. And then we pick it up here in verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, and he closed up that place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, hubba hubba, right? That's, but, but the NIV translates it this way. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I like hubba hubba better. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. The Hebrew there is she shall be called Isha, because she was taken out of Is. So it's, it's a play on that term there. But he's basically saying, she is a part of me. We belong together. We fit one another. Verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Here's the picture we get at the very beginning of God's creation. A man and a woman created to be partners in caring for God's creation, intended to raise children that would populate the earth to be fruitful and multiply and care for God's creation. We also see that the man will actually leave his family, sever, not sever that tie, but he will step out from that, the, the relationship that he has identified himself most closely through the majority of his life, he will step away from that and be united to his wife in a covenantal relationship where there is absolutely no shame. They can be naked and vulnerable in front of one another, be known and not ashamed. That's God's intention. And then sin comes and just blows the whole thing out of the water and screws it all up and you, have, you start having relational infighting and you start having shame and guilt enter into God's good creation. But at the beginning, that's what God intended. And it's interesting, you go, okay, well, what does this have to do with sex? I mean, I don't hear about sex anywhere in there, but here's the thing. Our society will tell us that sex is nothing more than a physical interaction between two people. It's nothing more than body on body. Hence, society celebrates sexual promiscuity in our television shows and all those kind of things. We see it everywhere. It's rampant. 
is not a big deal because it's just a physical act and it feels good, so might as well. But Scripture has something far different to say about sex. It recognizes that sex is far just as much spiritual as it is physical, that something happens in that act that bonds two people together, that unites them. The term that the Scripture uses is that it creates people into one flesh. It knits them together. And that term one, when they use that there, is the same word that's used in the Hebrew prayer, the Shema, that's prayed every day by practicing Jews around the world. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Although we have a God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are one in essence. They are unified. And that's the same term used to describe the man and the woman in a sexual relationship. You know, for the Israelites, for the Jews, they actually bring this idea. Their idea is that it's through our sexual interaction that we become one flesh. In fact, if you were to go to a Jewish wedding, first, it lasts a lot longer than like the 45 minutes that we spend. And then, you know, their weddings would, would go onwards of a week long. And it would not stop. The actual ceremony would not be finished until the bride and the groom went into a tent or into a room and they actually consummated the marriage. Because in their mind, that actually sealed them together as one flesh. That The sex sealed the deal. We bring this concept of sex being an integral part of our union even into the Western culture. Here in America, you can annul a marriage if you have not consummated it yet. Legally, it can just be kind of like, well, that was a mistake if you have not consummated it. Here's the point of all of why I'm sharing this. Sometimes in the church, we've made sex out to be dirty or bad. Maybe growing up, the way it was treated as, hush, hush, we don't talk about it. This isn't something you speak about. And I realize for some of us right here in this morning, this might be an uncomfortable conversation. You think it's uncomfortable, I get to talk about it. And it's uncomfortable also because I've had to actually be working a lot of this stuff through my own life over the last couple of weeks. And you'll see a little bit later on why it might be uncomfortable. But it is a terribly important thing. But sometimes the way we treat sexuality in not talking about it actually gives us the idea that it's something dirty or shameful that we shouldn't admit that it's a part of us. But the reality is what we see in the gospel me- or what we see in this message of God's good creation is he made us to be sexual beings. He could have helped us produce asexually. We could be like some fish or worms that are able to produce asexually, but instead he chose to make us sexual beings. Creating kids can be fun, at least for a little bit, and then they're with you for the next 28 years of their lives and they never move out. I don't even know where I'm going anymore. (laughs) Sex is a good thing, but sex is also radically powerful. And therein lies the reason why Scripture spends so much time warning us about not misusing and abusing sex. Think for just a moment about electricity. You know, I, when we were working on the bride's room up there, and we had a lot of electrical wires that were, you know, open and, and there, and every time, like, Greg or Jim or, or Gene would come in, these guys who actually knew about electricity, 
they constantly were saying, now, is the power turned off? And I'm going, what's the big deal? It's not like we're going to be playing with the wires, but the reality is they knew that if we touched a live wire, we could severely damage ourselves. And so they were constantly going, is the power turned off? And I didn't look at them as being killjoys for warning me not to play with the electrical wires. Back when I was a kid, I actually had a, a light that sat right above my bed. And one day, the, the light bulb broke, so I took it out. And I'm sitting there during a nap time when I should have been sleeping, and I'm looking at the empty socket, and I suck my finger, and it went, <laughs> jolted me. And I went, oh, that's kind of cool. So I did it again, you know, boom. <laughs> and I didn't understand at the time why when my mom found out what I had been doing, she's like, ah, don't do that. I'm going, what's the big deal? I had, you know, now as a parent, I totally get it. You know, electricity is powerful. Don't play with it. You don't know the kind of damage it can do. And isn't that the same with sexuality? It's a good thing. Electricity brings tons of of positive things to our lives, but misused, it can be incredibly destructive. Sexuality is a gift from God. It's incredibly good and life-giving when used according to the way that God designed it, but misappropriated. I mean, we've all seen the damage that that can do. As a pastor living here in Southern California, I can't tell you the number of families that I've seen blown apart because of sexual infidelity, because of sexual addiction. My wife and I have both walked with a number of kids, as well as adults who were kids who were sexually abused. Some of you in here this morning were sexually abused as kids, and you know the damage that it's caused in your identity and in your ability to unite with other people and, and, and trust other people. We've seen the damage that divorce can have, not only on the, the couple, but on their children and families. And many of us know that the alluring, forbidden fruit of lust and pornography that, that seems so satisfying and yet is completely empty incapable of satisfying us. And yet we find ourselves unwilling or unable to walk away from it and not continue to touch it. We've all experienced in one form or another, whether personally or vicariously through somebody that we love, we've experienced the damaging effect that sex misappropriated can have on our lives. And it's no wonder then why God would be constantly saying, run from it. Do not abuse your sexuality. This is a good gift, but it's powerful. And I want to protect you from it. He's not being a killjoy. He's being a loving father who's trying to protect us. Jesus goes one step further. We, we talk about the commandment, do not commit adultery. And we kind of read that, hear that, through a Western mindset that says our sexuality is simply physical. But Jesus takes it a step further. Go with me to Matthew chapter 5. Some of you are squirming out there. Why do we have to talk about this? Because we have friends who struggle with these things. That's why we're talking about it. Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus' longest recorded sermon. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And in this, in so many ways, Jesus is talking about rules that people have learned and, we, and they had really focused on kind of the external law. And as Jesus so often does, he takes it 
from simply a physical thing, and he says it's so much more than that. It's, it's not just about what our actions are. It's about our head and our heart and what's going on in there because that is where sin truly starts. That, this, these are the breeding grounds for our brokenness. Our actions are simply the, the kind of fruit that's produced by that. O, out of the overflow of our hearts, our actions kind of flow out. So we read in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 5, You've heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus doesn't give us the ability, as, as, as some of us maybe find solace in, in saying, well, I haven't had sex with somebody who's not my wife. I'm good. I'm, 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 this is not a problem for me. He goes, listen, this isn't just about your actions. This is about your heart. This is about your biggest sexual organ in your body, your brain. Because here's the danger of lust. Actually, no, before I get there, let me say this. There's a very big distinction between temptation and lust. We are all tempted in one form or another. We live in Southern California. The weather is starting to warm up. There are people who dress revealingly. It's, it's almost impossible to walk through grocery checkout lines or turn on the television unless it's TVN or Daystar or something without seeing somebody wearing something that's provocative. We are tempted to take second looks. We are attracted to people who are not our spouses and we are tempted. Is that sin? Is it wrong? Is it sinful to feel attraction to somebody who maybe is different from our spouse? Well, we have this solace from he the book of Hebrews. Even Jesus was tempted in every way that we were, and yet he's without sin. In other words, Jesus also felt temptation, so temptation is not in and of itself sinful. But it's when we allow ourselves to take the next step to dwell on it that it becomes lustful. Can we throw the definition of lust up there for a moment? This is a dictionary definition of lust. Lust is an intense or unrestrained sexual craving. Of course, we can lust after other things besides just sexual sexuality. We can lust after money or power or any of these other things. But I think that the operative word in this definition is unrestrained. Because the difference between temptation and lust is a difference in the posture or our response to it. All of us are, feel attraction. All of us are tempted to take second looks or to think about somebody else in a way that is not honoring. Some of us flee from that. But sometimes we lean into it and it's, our, our response is unrestrained. We give ourselves to it. We kind of order our lives around it. We focus on it. And that's when it becomes sinful, even if we don't act. And I will be the first to say here, I'm an adulterer to my wife, not because I've had physical sex with another woman, but because I have lusted. And I don't think it, there's any of us who could probably stand in here and say, I have not stumbled, at least in this area. And, you know, it's like, Jesus, seriously, do you want to constantly show us that we are imperfect people? And in some ways, yeah. In some ways, he's reminding us, you can't do this by yourself. You cannot be righteous by your own strength. But the point I want to make is just feeling temptation isn't sinful. It's what we do with those temptations when they come. Furthermore, 
why would Jesus warn us about this? What's the danger? Because the, the, the lie that I tell myself when I'm tempted or when I give in is it doesn't hurt anybody. It doesn't hurt my wife. It doesn't hurt my kids. It doesn't hurt my friends. But really what lust and our addiction to pornography does is it feeds a lie that society feeds us. And that's this. You deserve better. We are inundated with 2,200 commercial messages every day in this culture. And every single one of them points us to one thought. You are entitled to happiness. You are entitled to have your desires fulfilled. Your happiness is just a credit card swipe away. Your acceptance is just a Botox injection or a surgical procedure away. You deserve to be sexually gratified. And if your spouse can't cut that, or if you're single, well, that's a natural part of you, so you deserve to fulfill that, whether it's with somebody else or with something else. You deserve to be happy. That's the message of our society. It's a message of entitlement. And lust feeds that belief. And what we do is we trade the reality of a flesh and blood human being, a relationship with a full, well-rounded person who has wonderful strengths, but are also broken people just like us. And you trade it for a fantasy, which is not a three-dimensional person, even if you're looking at pornography, even if it's a real person in front of you, you don't see them as a well-rounded three-dimensional person. You don't see them as a son or daughter of God. You end up looking at them as a sexual object. You commodify them. You turn them into simply fuel for a lustful fire. And I'll be the first to say I've experienced this, and I've experienced the damage it has in the way that I view my wife. I've experienced the damage it has in the way that I interact. And the dissatisfaction that it begins to sow... And it is destructive. And so if there are any of us in here who are playing around with these areas and saying, well, I'm not hurting anybody, the message of society is you deserve to be happy. And the message of Scripture is flee from these things that claim to give life, but ultimately simply enslave you. Flee from these things. You know, the book of Proverbs talks about the adulterous woman and how she invites you, she entices you, her lips drip with honey. She invites you to a banquet, but that banquet is in the grave. And her footsteps lead to folly and death. And we're warned to flee from those things. Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It would be better for you to go through life maimed than to be enslaved by this. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And there are some people who literally have cut their hands off or cut other parts of their body off thinking that it would fix this problem. <laughs> and one guy I read who, who took some very drastic measures that I won't go into detail on ended up telling people, listen, I thought it would fix my lust. It didn't. Because I realized that my lust is not in that part of my body. My lust is in my heart and my head. I think that maybe getting rid of my computer or my phone will fix it, and there are definite ways that we can take steps to protect ourselves, and you should be doing that. 
But if you think that the problem is your computer or your cell phone or anything else, you need to look a little bit closer because the problem is a little bit more internal. And in many ways, it's a problem with a sense of entitlement. I deserve this, whatever this is. Okay, have we beat that horse enough? Let's transition a little bit. Go with me to Matthew chapter 19. Because Jesus doesn't allow us to simply look at adultery as something that we do physically with another person, nor does he allow us to look at it simply as something that's in our minds. He takes it one step further. He begins to address our perspective on marriage. There's this interesting disagreement that was taking place around Jesus' day between two different rabbis, Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel. These guys were arguing about what what was a worthy reason to divorce your spouse. Rabbi Shammai said, you know, you really shouldn't divorce your your spouse for anything other than marital infidelity, abuse, sexual um, infidelity with somebody else. Those are the kind of reasons that can be used for divorce. Well, Hillel said, no, wait a minute. We can divorce a spouse for any reason. If my wife burns my toast and I'm displeased with her, we should have the right to divorce. Moses gave us that permission. And so the, the Pharisees of Jesus' day get decide, hey, let's invite Jesus into this. Let's see what he has to say. You know, I'm, I'm curious to know which school of thought he's going to make angry and which school of thought he's going to align himself with. So we read this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees cam- came to test Jesus And they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Again, now quoting Rabbi Hillel. And notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't go, I'm with Shammai or I'm with Hillel. He actually points them back to Genesis chapter 2 as the foundation for his ethic on marriage. He said, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And he said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and become united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What God has united, no one has the right to break apart. What we see in this passage, and there's others like it that we could look at, is that God views marriage as a covenantal relationship between two broken people and himself. In many ways, he's that third strand that holds a marriage together and helps make it strong. But the danger is we actually live in a society that that is much more contract-based. Take my cell phone, which I put somewhere. There we go. All right. So I go into a cell phone store, and they've got these awesome smartphones that you know, if I wanted to go in there and just buy it right out, it might be five hundred, six hundred dollars. But my cell phone store says that if I'm willing to sign a two-year contract saying that I will get all of my airtime and all that from them, then they'll give me this phone for $100, or maybe they'll even give it to me for free. They'll scratch my back so that I'll scratch theirs. That's contract-based agreement. But wait a minute. What if I get bored of this phone six months from now? Or maybe there's another carrier that offers me a better deal. Am I stuck in that two-year contract? No, there are loopholes. You just pay a, a sum of money, a penalty, and you can break your contract, and you can go anywhere you want and get any kind of phone you want. That is the agreement of a contract-based society. 
it's, a, it's an agreement between the consumer and the producer. The producer says, I'm, or the consumer basically says to the producer, so long as you are making something that meets one of my felt needs and you're doing it at a price that I feel is worth what you're offering, then you've got my business. But the moment that what you're offering no longer is meeting my felt needs, it doesn't live up to my expectations, or I feel like the cost of it is too great, or I find somebody that offers me a better product at a, at a reduced price, I'm out. I have the right to walk. Because it's what I want. It's my needs that are king. And so long as you're scratching my itch, you got me. Now, this works wonderfully in a consumer-based society. I mean, this literally is the engine that causes our economy to go. But it is absolute dry rot. It is absolute poison to marriages. And i got to tell you that this consumer-based mentality has leached itself into our perspective on marriage in our society. We have gone from looking at marriages as a covenant to being a contract. A contract can be torn up. A covenant is permanent. And God, through Jesus, is simply saying, you cannot look at your marriage as a contract that you signed with somebody until something better comes along. You know, for richer or for poorer or for happiness sake, you know. This is a covenant. And you've not only made it with your spouse, but you've made it with me. So take your covenant seriously. Now, what's the difference? Because th those are terms that we could potentially use interchangeably. What is the difference between a contract-based mindset and a covenant-based mindset? I'm really glad you asked. I don't think that we have a slide, but look in your, in your outlines if you've got them. I've got them in my notes. I want to I paint a picture of two different postures. One posture, this side, is going to be our contract-based mindset towards marriage, and this side is going to be our covenant-based mindset towards marriage. A contract-based mindset says, it's me-focused. It's about me and my needs and getting them met. Whereas a covenant-based focus is, is we-focused. What is in the best interest? I say this at every wedding that I do. You need to stop thinking about yourself as an individual and begin to recognize that you are part of a unified whole. The choices that you make are no longer your own. They affect both of you, and you need to make choices that are in the best interest of the unified team. Now, that's not being you know, fully self-sacrificial that says you don't have any right. You have, you have just as much right as your spouse. But you can't just make selfish choices. You need to start understanding that you're a part of a team and acting that way. Me-focused versus we-focused. A contract says, well, what's it going to take, right? What's it going to take to make, you know, what, what do you expect? Whereas a covenant-based reality says, whatever it takes. Do you see the posture there? The, the contract is almost arms crossed, leaning back on, what's this going to require of me? Kind of assessing the cost. Whereas the covenantal base is leaning in, going, I'm ready. Let's go. Whatever it's going to take, you got it. A contract-based posture towards marriage says, I'll meet your needs if you meet mine. How many of you have, you know, don't raise your hand, but I mean, how many of us have thought that in marriage, thought that towards our spouse? I'll clean the car if you do this. I will, I will listen to you if you'll give me sex. I will, you know, 
pretend to have emotions if you will, you will think like a guy. Right, whatever. You know, I don't know what the arguments you guys have are. <laughs> but, but it's a, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. It's conditional. A covenant-based relationship basically says, I will do everything in my power to meet your needs regardless. Regardless of whether you're reciprocating, I will love you. I'll respect you if you love me. I will respect you. Period. I will love you. Period. A contract says, I'll meet you halfway. A covenant says, I am in 100%. A contract asks, what do I get? It's self-focused. A covenant says, what can I give? It's others-focused. A contract says, for as long as we both shall love, I think a lot of marriage ceremonies should probably use that terminology because it's more honest. It's not honoring, but it's more honest. A covenant says, for as long as we both shall live. And what that reveals is our perspective of what marriage is. According to a contract-based perspective on marriage, it is conditional and impermanent. It can be torn up. A covenant is unconditional and it's permanent. Does that make sense? You're you're beginning to feel the difference in posture between our society's kind of contractual perspective on marriage, perspective on relationships, and and God's covenantal perspective on marriage that says for better or for worse, in good times and in hard times, even when we don't see eye to eye and all we want to do is tear our hair out, so long as you're not physically hurting me, so long as you have not abandoned me and broken the covenant by running into the arms of another person and treated me like refuse, I'm in. I won't go anywhere. You got me 100%. I'm willing to fight for this marriage rather than waiting with my arms crossed for you to come and fulfill my needs before I'm willing to move towards you. That is the picture that God gives of marriage. That is the distinction between our perspective, er, God's perspective and society's perspective on marriage. Do you know that the number one reason that people give, because nobody goes into marriage, nobody in society goes into marriage expecting to get a divorce. No one. Although some people have prenuptial agreements, which literally are contracts saying, if this doesn't work out, here's how we're going to divide all the stuff ahead of time. Before we're really angry at one another and are going to just make choices out of spite. The number one reason given on divorce settlements for the reason they dissolved their marriage is irreconcilable differences. You heard this before? Irreconcilable. We are too different. We could just never see eye to eye. We're just different people. We fell out of love. We thought that it was the right thing, but we made a mistake. And something that Lee said a couple years ago that has stuck with me, one of the most profound things about marriage that he said is that every single couple, regardless of how similar you are, every single couple has irreconcilable differences. Kathy and I have irreconcilable differences. Regardless of how close you are, how similar you are, regardless of how much you share the same loves and joys, there are going to be things in your marriage that don't line up in areas where you miss one another. That is the nature of being married to a broken human being. And guess what? Your spouse is married to a broken human being. 
And society would say, well, if they're not making you happy, well, you deserve to be happy because remember, we live in a society that trumpets entitlement. You deserve to be happy. And God says, I didn't design marriage to be primarily about making you happy. I designed marriage to be primarily about making you holy, about refining you and setting you apart. I've heard one person say it this way. When you get married, it's like God gives you a full-length mirror that is your spouse with a little card attached saying, hey, here's to getting to know yourself. And I'll tell you, my wife can make me happier than anybody else in this world, but there's no one else in this world that can frustrate me more than my wife. There's no one in this world that I fight harder with. When, when you bring your junk to me, I'm totally capable of sitting there and listening because at the end of the day, you take your junk home with you. When Kathy comes home and brings junk, I try to fix it immediately because it's our junk. It's like, don't bring that into my house. I want to be relaxed, you know. I don't want to deal with this. You're emotional. Eh, forget that. It's not worth it. Let's watch TV. God recognizes that there's a part of our posture that just wants to run from difficulty because we like to be comfortable. And society says, well, you deserve to be comfortable. You deserve to be happy. So do whatever feels best. And God is saying, no. (laughs) Choose to lean in. When it gets difficult, lean in. Iron sharpens iron. And when it's really doing the work, it creates sparks. You're fighting? Okay, it means you're actually dealing with something. Or maybe it's, re- re- it's revealing that you're not actually communicating. You're not actually hearing one another. I mean, th- this, is, this is opening a whole can of worms of conversation that's a completely different conversation, so I'm, I'm going to let it lie there. But here's the point. Our society says, you deserve to be happy. And God says, I have called you to be holy. So run from sexual immorality. Run from any misuse of your sexuality. Because it is a good gift, but it's powerful. Or, our society says it's okay to walk out of a covenant that you've made. But I'm not giving you permission to do that. I am asking you, I'm calling you to fight for your marriage. To fight for your spouse. To make choices that are in their best interest. Not just your own. That's a hard thing to say. In fact, later on in, in, in Matthew 19, some of Jesus' disciples go, dude, if that's kind of the thing, then maybe some people shouldn't be getting married. And Jesus goes, well, yeah, for some people, that's the best thing. Yeah, it's true. Because marriage, and I don't think many of us think about the responsibilities that come with that. Think about the gravity of what we're saying yes to. But you're uniting your life with another imperfect human being and your spouse is uniting their life with another imperfect human being. So, brothers and sisters, and I'm speaking just as much to myself, and here's the thing, as as I kind of am wrapping this up here, I recognize that in many ways I may have stepped on some toes today. I may have made you uncomfortable. I may have made you want to just kind of back away from this and go, ah, I'm not comfortable with that conversation. I had one friend, who, you know, he's from Texas, and he goes, you know, when you throw a, a rock into a pack of wolves, you know which one cries out? One, the one that got hit. If you're feeling discomfort, perhaps it's because God is actually wanting to speak directly to an area 
in your sexuality or in your perspective on your commitments. My job as a pastor is not to answer every question or tie up every loose end. I'd like to. Eric Wayman, who wants you to, to like me, wants you to feel like this is a complete conversation, wants to be able to answer every one of the questions that this raises up, and I know it raises up a lot of them. But my job as a pastor is actually to point you to Jesus Christ. That is my primary job. Because it's Jesus alone who can actually walk with you through whatever brokenness you may find yourself in. Lee and I got into ministry because we love to walk with you. We love to walk with broken people and, and walk with them as they experience health. But Lee and I cannot save you. That's not our job. We can't be Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. And God alone can heal broken hearts. And I've got to tell you something. This is, this is the part that I have loved about being at this church. Is it's small enough that I've actually gotten to know many of your stories. And I've got to tell you that we have people in this church who have experienced the depths of this brokenness that we've discussed today. We have people in this church who have experienced adultery in their marriage. People in this church who have experienced a divorce because of, on account of, sexual infidelity from one of the partners. And I can stand before you today and say we have at least, at minimum, four couples in this church who have overcome because they were willing to lean into God and willing to do the hard work because there is a cost involved to this. And that's why Jesus says, run from it, flee from sexual immorality. But God is a God of redemption. God is a God of restoration. God is a God of second chances. And he can lead us out of addiction. He can heal wounds that have been inflicted upon our hearts and say, your identity is not what has been done to you or your identity is not what you have done. We have a couple in this church who, because of sexual infidelity were divorced for over a decade. And today they have been married again to one another for over a decade. Confirmation that God can transform hearts and heal wounds and in fact use people like that to minister. Sometimes our deepest wounds are the things that God uses to have us minister to other people. So no, I'm not answering every question. But this morning I simply want to leave you with this thought. If you have questions, bring those to God. Have some honest conversation. And I, I'll be the first to say, I don't think there's any one of us, and I can't certainly stand up and say, I've done this perfectly. I'm perfect in the area of my sexuality. I haven't, I haven't lusted. I haven't wanted to take a further step. I wanted to didn't want to go further with somebody. Guilty. And in the eyes of the law, I'm an adulterer. And yet, in the eyes of Jesus Christ, I'm a saint saved sinner. That is my identity. God, if God simply looked at the law and says, that is how I determine whether you can stand before me, none of us would be standing before him. None of us. But we serve a God who loved us so much that he sent Jesus for that very reason. 
to die on the cross to take the penalty that was due us so that we can have a relationship with God. And as we begin to lean into him, he can begin to strip away and restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Now, there's a lot more conversation there. In fact, we're going to go more in depth into that very thing. How can God free people who are trapped in slavery, free broken people from the bonds that they find themselves in, whether they're self-inflicted or inflicted by others? How can God redeem us? Now, society would say, society would laugh at this conversation and go, dude, you guys are way too uptight. Why does this matter? But we have to understand that we live in a society of slaves that claim to be free. And God does not want slavery for his kids. He wants to lead us into freedom. And next week, we're going to look at not just in the area of sexuality, but in every area of our lives. How can we begin to take steps into freedom? And out of our brokenness. But for this week, and here's what I'd like to do. We can close up. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads, and I'm just going to pray a prayer over all of us, because all of us have experienced brokenness in one form or another in the area of our sexuality. And so God, first off, I want to say thank you that you don't judge us based upon our own efforts, our own merits. That when you look at us, you see us washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, and you don't call us sinners and reject us. You look at us as our, your son and daughter because you see us through what Christ has already done for us. And I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you are a God of redemption and restoration. That you know that even though you forgive, there are still effects of our brokenness that affect not only us, but our loved ones, our families, our spouses, our friends. You know also that we are your ambassadors of hope and reconciliation. Some of us don't feel a whole lot of hope because we find ourselves trapped. We find ourselves trapped in shame and guilt for the things that we've done. We find ourselves trapped in anger because of the things that have been done to us. We recognize the ways in which we've taken our commitments and and taken them far too lightly. And in some ways we've torn them up and walked away from them and said, I'm not happy and I deserve to be happy. You recognize in each and every one of our hearts how much we've bought into the belief that we are entitled people who deserve to be happy. And as people who desperately want to be disciples of yours, who desperately want to be remade in your image, I pray that you would reveal to us the depths of our brokenness, not because you're some sadistic God and not because we just want to beat ourselves up or make ourselves feel guilty. But God, show us how deep this rot goes. Show us the areas where we have been making concessions, only giving 50%, cutting corners, cheating, but saying that we're not really, it's not really, we're playing the big sin, small sin game. It's not as bad as that person over there, so I'm justified. God, we need help because we don't want to be slaves who who declare that we're free. We want to be free, genuinely free. 
And we want to be sources of hope and reconciliation in a broken world that's full of slaves. Would you protect us from the attack of the enemy? Would you protect us from the brokenness of our own hearts? Would you protect our marriages? I pray for every marriage in this room right now and for every marriage that this is represented by this church. And I pray for your hand of protection over it. I pray for the communication of husband and wife. I pray for their commitment that they would lean in and fight when those fights come because they're going to come. Rather than walking away and saying, I'm over this, I'm done fighting. This person is so different from me. I thank you that you actually unite us with people who are different from us. I thank you that you use our spouses, that you use others to refine us. But God, we need help. Because apart from you, a marriage will easily fall apart. We've seen it far too often. God, I pray that rather than fighting vehemently over the definition of marriage, that we would look at our own marriages through your eyes. One of the greatest reasons why the homosexual community points to marriage and say we want to call it is because we within the church have not even taken it seriously. Would you help us in our hearts to take it seriously? To make those commitments. Truly a covenant. We give you our lives. We give you our hearts. Or at least we want to. Would you help us to actually do it? Would you protect our minds? Would you protect our thoughts? Would you protect our hearts? I pray that you would glorify yourselves through our lives. Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Invite the worship team to come up. I imagine that I've probably raised a lot of questions this morning, and and I don't... In saying I encourage you to bring them before God, I am not suggesting that if you have questions that you just hold on to them and and just pray about them. If you want to come and talk to Lee or I or anybody, I encourage you to do so. That's why we got into ministry in the first place. But please, don't just take what we've talked about this morning and, and bury it. It's too important. And the cost is far too great.